How's everything been? Been whirlwind, man. Lights on fire. How about you? Yeah. Same. I love it that way, though. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I like hair on fire, man. I, if, I, I feel like if I don't have anything going on, I'm screwing up something I don't know about. Was that personality trait hard as a sniper? I would think that as a sniper, you have to be way more controlled and way more patient and like sometimes i would imagine you'd sit for hours in one place so like could you take your overall approach to life like you just explained with um hair on fire and be a sniper with that or did you have to really like pump the brakes and change the way that you were wired no i think it's kind of a funny thing when you ask that question is because i mean i mean we've met in person one time and, and i would say that if i had one characteristics i never stopped talking if you'd ask, if you'd pull a hundred people, 99 would say, I never shut up. Right. And, uh, right. I feel like I do run around, you know, pretty wide open when it's time to turn it on. So, you know, it kind of is contradictory to the sniper thing. But what I would say on that is it's, it's, it's very in line with the Ranger thing, right. Where it is a high op tempo and it's high pressure and it's wide open and, you know, being able to multitask type of thing. But, Maybe in some aspects, it's just kind of a, you know, split personality role playing type of thing that once you get into, you know, being in the woods, it's also that entire community shuts up. Right. So, you know, it's all just always tactical silence. Oh, I like that word. Tactical silence. Yeah, I would think that you'd have to really hone in like. You can't ever take a chance. Like, tell me, like when you're there and you can't give up your location, is there conversation going on? How do you communicate? I mean, like you and your partner are sitting because you have a spotter and you have the gunman. And I'm yeah. talking about your sniper days. Um, you're, how far apart are you sitting and how loud can you talk without taking a chance? Well, I mean, just operationally is completely different than training. But you, even though you try to keep training as close to operational relevance as you can, um, I'll give you an example. I think last time we talked about, you know, doing some uh, – some some operations, some small team stuff um, in Afghanistan, and you know, and that in the situation I'll bring up. I think we talked about being up on the uh, Pakistan border and doing an overwatch of an entire village in a valley and looking for some IED stuff and, and those types of things. And so, in that situation, you know, it would have been we we're really away from everyone. I think it was probably about four to six hours for a for a quick reaction force in case we got in contact to get to us by ground. And then obviously, you'd, you know, air assets, it'd probably take 45 minutes to get to you. So you're kind of out in the, out and alone. So, you know, compromising your position can, can have dire consequences. And so, and, you know, in that situation, it's, it's literally, you know, side by side whispering in each other's ears, you know, it's, uh, you know, trying to be as quiet as you can. There's, there's limited talking, you know, when you're on the radio, it's, it's, it's usually quite low. You know, when you're trying to communicate as, as quietly as you possibly can. And, you know, it's those situations in those mountains like that. You know, you're up in that mountain laurel and it's a real thick environment. And, you know, we've, we've, we had we had goat herders walk probably 15 yards from us, you know, and, and you couldn't even hardly see them. So, you know, you never know how close someone would be and be able to hear you or something like that. You know, and I think think one, you know, the one situation where we picked up and displaced all the way across the valley that night, I think I think there was a goat herder and his kid and, you know, probably 20, 25 goats. And they were probably within three to five steps of us. And that's six guys laying on the ground in the mountains. And just, you know, you almost couldn't see them from the waist up, you know, that kind of thick. And you're just off a path a little ways. And, 
you know, the, the terrain doesn't allow you a lot of times to get separated too far from those types of avenues of approach. Right. You know, I mean, if you think about a really steep hillside with large granite boulders, you know, sometimes you can only get 20, 30 steps off of a trail and, and then, and then below you is, you know, just too treacherous to, to navigate, you know, so you're kind of up against it, but you know, all that communication is done, you know, very quietly. And then, you know, there, I think sniper wise, I think in training, I think that you excel at communication, right? You're trying to always really fill, fill the gaps of, you know, your partner's shortcomings and, you know, and he's trying to fill your shortcomings and hopefully between his and your shortcomings and each other's strengths, you become a, you know, a very efficient team. But, you know, the longer you work with someone that that communication becomes a lot easier. Right. And, uh, you know, specifically if you're raised in the same, say platoon squad environment, you know, that, that communication protocol is all basically the same common terms that you would use. Right. So, you know, I, I bet you see it in, you know, the waterfowl hunting word is, you know, some guys like to yell, take them, take them, shoot them, get them, you know, and everyone's got a little bit different protocol to how they talk. And some of that can probably be regional or just kind of the outfitter they worked with or, you know, et cetera, like that. Do you, when you start thinking about your military career, that part of it, and I know you somewhat, but I know about you more than I know you, um, is it easy to talk about or do you refrain from as much of that as possible? One, because you want to put it away and forget about it. Or two, are you open to communicate about it? Because it's just, it was part of your life and you have such this, like you have a different kind of wheel than, than a lot of people of like, Hey, it was, it, that was what I did. That I, you even admitted at one time in the last podcast that you were probably the selfish one that, you know, and that the people that came and supported you were doing that. And, and you were probably the one being more of, of selfish when I would look at it like, well, if they don't support you, they're the selfish ones kind of attitude. But do you openly talk about it or is it, is that kind of, for lack of better terms, is that shunned down upon to be expressive and to want to talk about what you experienced? And obviously you don't want to give up any secrets. I get that, but is it okay to talk about it? Oh yeah. I mean, for, you know, for me, I, I would say almost everyone that I knew, you know, um, I would say we probably have about, you know, 80 to 90% openness about, you know, the things that we've done or did. And obviously there's a ton of pride. So of course you want to talk about it. You know, it's, it's odd to be doing a one-on-one -on -one interview and talk a little bit about humility when you're talking about yourself. But I think when you, when you deal with, you know, the like-minded individuals or there's that kind of circle of trust, I, I, I think it's exciting to talk about, you know, that those elements of my life. And I, and I feel like the guys around me are the same way, you know, and then you get in that kind of 20% where it's, it's real easy to talk about in, in, in I would say 80 to 90% terms. And what I mean by that is, is I think within common people and, you know, people that maybe aren't quite part of that, let's call it community, you know, 80 to 90% of it's easy to talk about because I'm extremely proud of, you know, 22 years of service. And I'm extremely proud of, you know, where I came from and what I accomplished and, you know, where it's taken me. Um, you know, you get around that trusted circle, you know, and sometimes that can just be good folks and that trusted circle, then, you know, more and more of that comes out, right? That's where you, let's call it the war stories, right? You know, that's where the war stories come out. And then the things that, you know, maybe aren't so comfortable, you know, the three to 5% there, you know, that's a very, that's usually the people that you were associated with, with those events and people that have a common understanding, you know, you, you might bring them up with each other, but, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone runs away from them. I, I think that, I think one thing that I see in, in, in people, you know, like me, I guess, would 
would be a sense of humor in order to get past a few of the things. Cause you know, everything's got a, everything's got a level of, of, of humor in it. Right. You know, some of the most screwed up situations are really what everyone talks about because they're the funniest about how much dumb shit was going on and, you know, the stupidity of it. And, you know, sometimes the, the hair raising aspect of it is just to laugh at, like, I can't believe it type of things, you know, but uh, yeah, I think for the most part, everyone, you know, that I'm around seems to have an okay time talking about almost 97, 8% of what, what's going on, you know, did, did it, did your job ever get emotional? Like, you, oh, of course. Yeah. When you're yeah. a snipe, when you're a sniper, I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume we know what you do as a sniper. Do you ever, when you mix pride, training pride, everything that you know about the the task at hand and the mission and the target and all that, does emotional, I don't know, like, do you ever get sad or like, how does that affect oh. your human psyche when you're seeing that and you're, and you're doing it? I, you know, I would say that um, if I can kind of make an analogy and, and see if this makes sense is, you know, when you're playing football, right. And you know, you run down the field and you run someone over, you know, and you, you know, you get done with the play, you know, everyone's, you're excited about it. You go back to the huddle and it's not until you kind of get done with the game that you realize what you did. Does that make sense? And yeah. so in the moment, I think you're, you're, you're caught up enough in the moment that, you know, some of the more emotional things that, you know, potentially could happen or do happen. I think they, even, even if they get you in the moment, you're like, you know, you got to push on through what's going on and anything that's emotional, I think comes, comes post operation, you know, it comes, you know, when everything's over. Uh, I think that's when reality is there. Right. You know, and that's, and that goes from, you know, I, I don't want to take that as sadness. Right. And, you know, that when sad events happen, of course, sadness is there and there's, there's misery and, and, and floods of emotion. And there's also the adrenaline dump that comes, you know, after a really good operation or one that's very involved where, you know, you're really level-headed and I could almost, I could almost associate that in the hunting world as, you know, shooting a deer, right. You know, you, you're you're in a tree stand you're nice and calm everything's happening you shoot the deer you watch the deer go down and there's just this huge flush this huge like adrenaline rush right and so you know i i would say that you know you know you get on say getting on a bird and you're flying back and you know you're in a good mood everyone's good to go you're coming back everyone's in you know kind of in a numb state you get on the ground and then all of a sudden that 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 flush comes right and everyone's happy and everyone's reliving it and talking about it and that's when a lot of the laughter is there. And then, you know, if there's tragedy that's associated with it, you know, there's, there's that, that comes shortly after that as well. You know, a lot of times you don't know the tragedy happens, right. Until you come back, you're on the ground and, you know, everyone's in a good mood and high five. And then you're like, Hey, did you hear about that? And then you're like, Oh man, that just took the air out of the balloon. Right. Have you ever been a religious and I know this is all personal and you don't have to answer, but religious or, more importantly, spiritual, did it mess with the, your upbringing at all, knowing that that was going on at your hands? But we also have to have the understanding that that was your job. That's what you did for our armed forces. Did your did your spirituality or your belief in the man upstairs ever play a role? Um, did you have to continuously talk to him? Did you continuously pray, Jason St. John? Did you pray for the enemy and the target at all? How much does spirit, spirituality and religion pay, play in a sniper's life? Well, you know, I can only, you know, I talk about me personally, you know, I was raised Catholic, um, but I, you know, we weren't strict Catholics, right? It was, 
Um, anytime we were visiting grandma, we went to church every Sunday and then, you know, Easter, uh, you know, uh, Christmas mass, Christmas you know, type those types of formalities. So, um, I wouldn't say I was strict. And then, you know, when you're a young man and you know, you're raised to respect God, but you know, it, it doesn't take a, such a seminal point in your life. You know, when you're 20, 25 and 30 years old, you know, the, the level of bulletproofness that all of all, you know, all young people have, you know, probably dominates there. But, you know, I would say that, you know, my level of spiritualness has expanded, you know, over time and after experiencing those things, you know, um, you know, I, I, I see the greatness in it and I see the comfort that's there, but as far as, you know, operational and being over there, um, since that really wasn't a, a, a foundational aspect of my life, um, you know, it probably, it didn't really play that much of a role, you know, how, how hard was it for you to, a lot, most of the, the, the military personnel that I've had the pleasure and honor of working beside in this industry and, and being a part of or hunting with, I've always asked them, um, the downtime and the, the desire and the willingness, even after they're long retired or even wounded veterans want to go back and they miss their brotherhood and their sisterhood over there. They miss being alongside their brothers and sisters and fighting for the freedoms of America. Did you face that a lot when you were in your downtime in between missions or excursions, deployments, were you itching to get back on the bird and get back over there? Yeah, I, I think there's a phase where, everyone's excited to go and do those things. And, you know, I would say, you know, kind of middle of the GWAT, I, I went to the army marksmanship unit and I did uh, about seven years as a competitive shooter. And, you know, it, it took me a long time and, you know, maybe still not quite, com not completely come to terms with missing out on not doing enough. Does that make sense? You know, where, yeah. You know, for those seven years, I mean, I deployed twice with them, but only like in a training role and, and, and work in some aspects of that, that, you know, I, I probably dealt with a little bit of guilt there for a while of, of, of not doing my part. So I, I understand that. I, uh, I'd say the most people that, are, you know, I'm familiar with and around, um, you know, I, I'd say after doing it a few times, I think you eventually get to the point where you're like not regretting going. You're, you're happy to go, but, you know, it eventually it gets tiresome. But on the same standpoint, I, I think that wears off within about three to five days of deployment, right? And, and I think a lot of that tiresome aspects comes back to what your personal life is, what your personal situation is, you know, women, you know, wives, girlfriends, kids, things like that, you know. So I think those are the things that probably weigh on you more. And, and that's why we go back to what we were talking about being selfish, right? I, I just demanded that people got drug along and, you know, do the things I wanted to do and you know, I'm fortunate that I had enough love in my life and enough support in my life and the resiliency and the relationships that I had for those things to, you know, to, to, to carry through. When it was all said, I'm just, while you're talking, I'm thinking about like the, the steps that it takes to, to fulfill a person's life. And after such a career of the marksmanship, the championships, the honor, the service, the, the bravery being a sniper, being an army ranger, be, doing what you did for us, there's always kind of that where wh I think about like me, like if I was a professional baseball player and you retire, you were talking about football so we could keep it in the NFL. A lot of guys that I talked to are like, dude, I haven't watched a game in 
10 years. I haven't been around a football in 30, like I haven't even, I don't even think about it anymore, right? Some of them go on and they become commentators or they become a coach or a defensive coordinator, whatever. How does the military play a role in a man's life like you, Jason St. John, where you were, it was such who you were and you, and you gave so much to it. When you step away from it, do you continue to give back? Do you try to go to events? Do you try to keep um, up to date on current event type of situations of what's going on with the different branches of the military, the different arms? Does that question make sense? I mean, or do you kind of just wash your hands from it and say, you know what, that was that part of my life and now I'm in the professional world. But I assume with Sig Sauer, you still work with military on a daily basis. How does the military continue to play a role in your life? Well, so that's, it's kind of an interesting question and kind of, kind of twofold, you know, so, you know, uh, you know, being at Ranger Regiment, uh, probably I don't know, a little over 15 years, you know, what I like to say about that organization, it was, you know, high op tempo, high demand, no fail, you know, type of type of organization. And, you know, usually, you know, I think the, the goal for most people when they transition out of the military, at least from the military's perspective, is to kind of to take a year. Um, I worked up to about three and a half months to get retired and get all my stuff. So I was, you know, I was wide open still, you know, three, four weeks on the road out of every month. And I was doing some marksmanship training there at the end. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I did finally, you know, pump the brakes there and, and had four months before I got out, uh, you know, I, I felt very fulfilled. You know, when I, when I got out of the military, I felt like I'd closed the book and it was, it was, and I, and I, I don't feel like I miss it or I need to look back on it. Um, you know, when I did retire, I, I took six months off. I, I went and worked for a friend up in Saskatchewan for uh, the duck season. So I, you know, assistant guided with him, you know, we've talked obviously being waterfowl hunters and that was kind of my exodus. That was kind of the buffer zone. So, you know, I, I started in Saskatchewan uh, last week of August, you know, first of September season started and I basically did a month and a half up there and I started coming South and, you know, and, and I, until, until uh, shot show January, 2017, I, I hunted, basically every day and stayed with the migration all the way down. So in some ways, you know, as a waterfowl hunter was quite spiritual in the aspect. And I was very thankful again to have, you know, the love and support and of my family around me to allow that. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a very good, uh, you know, let's call it a decompression time where it was just, you know, old high school friends meeting up here and meeting old friends here. And, you know, you know how spiritual being in the woods can be, you know, and, and, and being around those friends. So I think that was a very good buffer. But now the second part of that is, is, you know, I, so, in, you know, in January, I went and uh, shot show, uh, got hired by Remington, worked for them for a little over a year, um, had a, had a friend that worked at Sig Sauer and, uh, you know, we didn't, we, we would talk and um, at the trade shows and other events that kind of co-aligned and uh, eventually an opportunity came to, to go to Sig, which uh, really kind of overlapped with Remington's, you know, financial issues. So it was kind of a, a, a good opportunity and, you know, the firearms industry and specifically since I've been with Sig Sauer is, you know, very, you know, I'd say whenever you go to trade shows or events or you're working with the military and you're working on opportunities, they're, they're very military heavy, right? You know, I, you know, Sig Sauer is probably, I would say almost 20 to 25% of the employees at Sig Sauer are either prior service military retirees or law enforcement officers. So there's a lot of like-minded individuals there. Um, and then you get to, you know, the defense team, which I work on, you know, I've got a, 
you know, I've got a Navy special warfare guy. That's my boss. Um, you know, I work with a, my, like I said, another friend who was from Ranger regiment. I, I work with a guy from uh, other soft part of, of the U S communities. And, and, and so the guys I work around every day are, are really the, the, the best of the guys at their organizations at those levels. And so it's almost like I've graduated into another varsity team. And, you know, I mean, we've got SF guys and, you know, like I said, I mean, out of probably 16, 17 uh, individuals working there, guys and gals, you know, 12 or 13 of them are, uh, you know, from the soft community. So, and they're all NCO. So, and then you couple that with going to Sig Sauer, which like I described, Ranger Regiment is high op tempo, high success, no fail. I mean, it's almost, you know, at first when I said I didn't really miss the military, I don't think I've been given a chance to miss the military working on the defense side at SIG. You know, it's almost like a, it's almost like an old fat gray group of guys that used to be something that are still doing something. <laughs> but but have the intelligence to keep doing is the most like that that company is unbelievable with and congratulations on the new announcement um i appreciate I that you know and, and and you know a lot of that success is you know we talk about military personnel but you know and i, and I don't mean this as a negative but you know we're, we're it's almost all well it isn't almost all everyone in the military and on the defense side is a prior nco so a non-commissioned officer blue collar worker you know all the way up to you know our executive vice president of defense and you know and really the CEO of the company was a prior IDF, you know, military. He was an officer, NCO and an officer in the, in the Israeli Defense Forces. So we've got a very strong, you know, um, military heritage and a military foundation. And like I said, I don't mean it to sound negative, but, you know, the nice thing about NCOs is everyone's just given away and, and there's not, you know, you know, every, obviously everyone has their their pride and their ego, but it's really left at the door. I mean, we, we, we give way together so good with everyone and, I mean, I, I think the secret to success is that, like I was saying, you know, the, the, the executive vice president is out on the range picking up brass. He's, he's not ever in the office. He's there with us every day. And like I said, you got retired sergeant majors, required, you know, retired senior master chiefs and retired master sergeants, and, and they're all out there cleaning guns and standing in the heat and the sun. And, you know, they're out there doing the work. And, you know, they really kind of bring that military mindset of, you know, of, of rehearsing and, and you know, inspections and, you know, can and continuously striving for success and kind of that, you know, after action review aspect of, you know, what we do right, what we do wrong, how do we do it better? And, you know, that's really almost on a daily basis. And I would say that along with the amazing team that supports the defense aspect, you know, cause no matter what it is, it's who you have around you. And, you know, obviously that starts at leadership and empowering the defense team. And then, you know, the engineering efforts that go on to really take the feedback and the product development from the defense guys and, and, and bring it to reality. Right. Cause I'm, I'm a draw on a napkin guy, you know, and, yeah. and you know, the, the smart guys that can put it into to CAD and those guys that can model it and they can, you know, they can prototype it and print it and do all those types of things are really, you know, they're the guys that are making the products and they're, they're bringing vision to reality. And then not only are they bringing vision to reality, you know, they're the ones that have to work out all the bugs and, and, and bring that vision, you know, through all of its iterative steps to make sure you have a finalized product. And so, yeah, so, you know, one of the really exciting things about working on the defense side, but more importantly, working for SIG is, you know, obviously we're a commercial company, but with a high focus on defense. And, and what that allows us to do is, you know, develop products for the professional end user, whether that's the military or the LEO. And, you know, those products that have to meet the demanding aspect of, of those customers, 
you know, we understand that there are going to be commercial opportunities for those products to be in the hands of the everyday person. And, you know, who's who's more professional, you know, than than the everyday user who's, you know, family and life and, you know, survival and protection depend on your product. When you got on that big bird at the base and you knew you were going overseas and you might have stopped in Germany on your way to Afghanistan or somewhere, did you were you fearful? Were you scared that you might not come back? And I know that your family probably was, but were you, because I'm scared that sometimes I look, go out, I look at people going out in public and be like, who's it going to affect? Like, I'm scared that somebody's not going to come back from this, that it's going to continue to happen. It's been going on and it's just happened three or four times in the last 14 days. It's scary to me. So how do you, how do you uh, handle that kind of fear as opposed to when you're in the military going over there to, to go into theater? Well, you know, just kind of backing up on what you said, think about that is, is, you know, a couple things. When we were kids and well through our 20s, about the only unexpected phone call you thought you would get about someone dying early would have been a vehicle accident. You know, it would have been like something like that, right? Some Or something, some kind of freak accident. You go back and, you know, the other side of it, if, you know, nowadays, if, if someone got wrapped up in the wrong things and, unfortunately they lost their life you would say well life's decisions take you places and if you wrap yourself up in 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 bad things bad things are going to happen and there's you know unfortunate consequences to your actions and then the next thing you kind of said there was a dancing grandmother decided to go to a parade How, how do you how do you square where the hell she screwed up there in that decision you know and so yeah when you talk about going overseas um, you know, the reality hits you when you hit the ground, it's 28 hours. You say goodbye to your loved ones. You know, it's, you know, you kind of just on a long flight that sucks, especially the first time going overseas. Then you land there and there's a lot of nerves. And then kind of once it gets going, you know, after about two, three weeks, then you're just kind of going through it. It's on autopilot, you know? And, and like I said, it's like a play in a football game, right? You know, you, you, you don't re- reflect on it until after the mission's over and, and those things. But you know, one thing I thought was always funny is, you know, whenever there'd be troops in contact and you'll hear people call, you know, it's a tick, but whenever there'd be something going down and, you know, where we were at on a couple of times, you'd only be able to send out, you know, two or three truckloads of guys, two or three Humvees of guys as a quick reaction force. So, you know, usually, you know, a squad heavy, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 dudes to go get into it. And I always used, I always used to laugh because, you know, not just myself, but you know, I outranked some folks, so I'd run up and I'd yank them off the truck. You're not going, I'm going. And, and you'd see people always, you know, posturing and, you know, hey, these people are going. And then you'd pull out the gate and you'd get about, you know, half mile down the road towards getting in a firefight. And you'd be like, fuck, I didn't have to jump on this truck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like, and then you're like, well, shit, we're on it now. You know, but you would, I, I, I guarantee every single person on that truck was like, fuck there's 25 30 other people fist fighting to get on this damn thing and you know i didn't have to get on it you know but uh you know and then that's just how it is and and then you'd laugh about it and the next time would happen you'd be fist fighting and yanking people (laughs) off and you know pulling rank and sitting on the truck or you know i was a sniper so i could be like hey they need a sniper on this mission you know i could just you know pull that positional thing and you'd get on it and every single time like god dang it (laughs) i didn't have to get on this damn thing but you know so you know, it's kind of funny, that kind of stuff would happen. And when you talk about today's world, you know, I've, I've completely evolved, you know, and maybe some of that's being 50 almost now compared to being 25, but you know, I, you know, 25 years old, 
you know, it was nothing to still get in a fist fight. Right. I mean, it was still, you know, I'm, 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 I'll be frank and tell you, I've been in quite a few of them, you know, from the time I was 12 or 13 to probably 30. And I could never see myself, not because I'm just 50, but because where things could go nowadays, I, I can't even see myself. I've, I, I, I don't give anyone the finger on the freeway. I, you know, I put my hands up and, you know, give them the, the, I'm sorry, you know, like, even if it's not my fault, I don't get on people's bumpers. I don't road rage. I don't do any of that stuff. If I see anybody confrontational, if someone was in a bad mood, I would apologize to them. Like, Hey, sorry, I'm not looking for it. You know, cause if you can diffuse the situation in any way that you possibly can, you'll never be in a situation where you have to make a decision. Do I have to go to, you know, what's in my belt or vice versa? It'd be nothing to get off a freeway and be walking into a circle K and come out of the bathroom. And there's the son of a gun that you pissed off six miles, eight miles, 10 miles before. Right. And he's, he's got something on his mind. So, you know, if I can stay out of situations and if I could, you know, avoid them and, and that would include running, you know, if I could run away from something that was bad, I would encourage everyone to run away from it. Don't, don't stay, don't stay there and, 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 and make it inevitably progress to something, you know, there's, there's no pride in being dead. No. And, you know, now the flip side of that is, is as soon as that situation evolves to where there is no escape from that situation, you know, when it's, when it's apparent that you're in a position and it becomes life-threatening, I think you need to have the mindset to be prepared to flip that switch and you need to be aware when that happens and you need to be first, you know? I was just going to go into that. When, as a military man, when you go into the Circle K, do you go into it with a nonchalant attitude or are you watching every nook and cranny angle, escape routes, exits, entrances, who's got your six, who's at your six, who's, who's got your back? I've, I've, I've seen other military seminars or whatever where they talk about the awareness. Are you 100% with your mindset aware all the time when you're in public is with your, with your background? No. I, you're not. I, I wish I, no, no, no. I wish I was. I, I would say... I don't think anybody can do that. And I know people might tell you that, but I, I think to be 100% switched on for, I, for one, I don't, I don't think it's physically or mentally possible. And I'm sure I'll get criticized for that, but I don't, I don't think it's hell. I don't even know if it'd be healthy to be honest with you, to be that, that aware. Um, Is that kind of paranoia almost? I'd like to say yes, but I'd also say no, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm just being honest with you and say that, now, what I would say, if I notice, I, I would say I'm scanning, I'm watching, but I'm not checking every car or every person or, you know, you know, I'm not extremely diligent. Could I be more diligent? I, I think there's not a person on here that couldn't be more diligent unless you are that 100% guy. But I would say, um, you know, I am aware and as soon as something looks out of place, you know, if I if I would say pull into that gas station and there's a couple people arguing, I'll just get in my car and go to the next one. I, I, I don't I don't want to be in a situation and, and I sure as hell don't want to be a hero unless there's a hero is needed. And so I'm not gonna inject myself into anything that's that's gonna purposely put myself myself in harm or my family in harm and, and that's a different story if something was already going down. But you know, I, I I, I don't want to inject myself in a bad situation and I'd rather avoid him if everything I can do. And so when you ask about being switched on is if I see something that looks, you know, effed up, I'm not going to stick around to see if it progresses to getting more effed up. You but know? you're so, not, you, but you don't go into a, okay, let's just take like a, a 
do you put yourself in a position? Um, are you comfortable at places like SHOT Show or in an arena or a festival or a, a place where there's 10,000 people? Are you mentally and emotionally comfortable being in there? I know you can take care of yourself, but does your mindset allow you to relax when you're around that many human beings? I've never been to an event in the last five to t- probably at least five years that I haven't probably looked around, kind of scanned what's going on, looked where the exits were and felt uncomfortable. It's like, I just went to a concert uh, last Friday with my wife, you know, small venue, great band. If you get a chance to the dead South, they're out of Saskatchewan. They're great. Yeah. We went wife and I have seen them a couple of times and I took her up there on Friday the 13th. So that kind of made me nervous. I know it sounds (laughs) dumb, but you know, it was 2,500 people, all awesome, bunch of great attitudes. And I was like, I was, I was uncomfortable. And I, you know, and I, and I don't know if that's healthy. I don't know if that's unhealthy, but I was like, you know, I did, I did, we, you know, stand a room general admission. So we were, you know, we were in a kind of in the corner protected and we were about 20 steps to the exit. Right. You know, and that type of thing. So, I mean, I think there is an awareness of, of an escape plan. I think there's an awareness of if you can't escape, but you know, a lot of that uneasiness comes in an event like that is, is there is no everyday carry. There is no knife. There is no nothing, right? You're, you're hoping that the security and you're relying on the people out front who, you know, do a good job 99.9% of the time. But you know, is there that one, 1%, right? You know, people get on airplanes with guns too, right? And there's a, you know, so it, it makes it a lot more uneasy when you don't have that implement or that tool or, you know, at your disposal in case things go bad and all you have is flight, you know? Yeah, I guess if you said that, you know, something can go bad in a situation like that and they got the security and they got the metal detectors and you cannot bring a gun in, like even at a Costco store, you can't bring a gun into a store. And um, I guess like if you're evil, you could find a way to get it in there. If you're a law abiding citizen, a law abiding citizen, you're going to follow the rules. But gosh, darn it. I mean, look out for us and let the people that aren't in, you know, evil people protect the other ones and then when you take it out of their hands evil's gonna find its way in if though if you can't shoot somebody there's been people that drove cars into people like we just talked about there's if people want to be evil they're gonna find a way that's that's what i have a hard time understanding and my question to you jason is if you have such a hard time being with 2500 strangers like that and and you had a great time you had fun with your with your wife but you still were were not 100 percent at ease or relaxed how does the how does the father in you let your daughters and sons go to school and go to these events as they start to get older and they start to get in these situations that they can't defend themselves at if they can't per se have a their carry permit weapon with them and, and such? Well, thankfully, I haven't I, dealt with that I'm yet. A, I'm, I'm asking you to educate me a second because I battle with this of. How do you not be anal? How do you not be overprotective? How do you let it just relax and be a good dad and let my daughter go be a daughter like I was able to? But at times have changed. And I'm trying to figure out how to be be that dad that that kind of encompasses it all. Sorry well, to cut you off. No, no, you're solid, man. I, I My daughter's 13, so I, you know, it's just starting for me. But I, you know, hell, I was just talking to my wife the other day. I'm like, how the hell am I going to turn her loose with a driver's license? that's just that's you know she's 13 they they progress so fast right i mean 12 to 13 was completely different but you know i i don't know how it's going to be when i get there you know i i'm it's it's a 
you know, what a crazy place to be where you got to release him to the wild and let him fail and still protect him at the same time. And just hope that what you're protecting him from is those easy lessons that you and I learned that people are assholes. You know, that that's what you learned. You know, we can't, you can't trust everyone and people might take steal from you or people might, you know, not respect your property or not respect you as a person. And they're, you know, just, like I said, just assholes. That, that was kind of the lessons you and I had to learn. Right. Yeah. You know, it was just kind of surround yourself with good people and, you know, be as good as you can to make sure you've got good people around you and are supporting those that you love, but it's a whole different world now. And, and, and I don't know the answer to that, you know, and it's kind of funny. And I was thinking about this when we were talking a second ago is, and I don't know if it's right, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old. So I look back on things and I'm like, I'll, I'll get criticized for this, but I think the world was a better place when middle schoolers and high schools could fist fight and when they could, then they could settle their disagreements, you know, and, and it wasn't like they were bad, bad fights when you were a kid, you know, the, the fights you got into, you, you know, you weren't as strong as a man and, you know, you, you, your, your knuckles are softer and you don't know how to hit. And when you do get it, you're telling someone to say uncle, right. Or when he quit, it was done type of thing. Right. And, you know, hell I got, you know, my problem is, is I'm, I'm 260 pounds in my prime. I was probably 225 to 235 and I had very little body fat, you know, 10, 12% and probably physically a pretty tough guy. But, you know, when I was in high school, I had the same size mouth and I weighed 142 pounds, you know, so <laughs> I got self-corrected quite a bit. You know, I, I swerved out of the lane and got a little too wide to the left and I got put right back in the center, you know, and in between classes or, you know, not knowing when to shut up. And, you know, I, it, it never, never really went past just, you know, simple childhood fights. And now, you know, and I'm not trying to say that I'm advocating for people to you know beat up each other. I'm just saying that through my life, I've, I've been put back in center and I've put a few people back online with just a couple smacks, right. You know, give and take. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if today, I don't know if today that society protects people so much or that they shelter them so much that this stuff just bubbles up to a point where the only time they ever get to outlet, you know, any kind of outlet, it isn't to, you know, tell Jason he's an asshole and come up and pop me in the nose and tell me to leave him alone. It's, it's now I've got to take it out because this has been building for three to five years. I, I, I don't know that that's probably a simple way of looking at it, but something's changed societally, you know, and, and things are a hell of a lot different, but uh, going back on your kids, you know, what I would say, I think one of the biggest travesties in gun laws is the fact that you have to be 21 years old to own a pistol. And I'm going to send my daughter to college and you're going to send your daughter to college at 18 years old. She has no way to self-protect herself on an everyday carry perspective. She likely weighs somewhere between 100 and 140 pounds. And anyone that's going to assault her weighs at least, a, you know, another double her weight is probably a good way of looking at it, right? 185 to 250 pounds. And for three years, that young lady has to go through the world not having an ability to legally defend herself because she's not allowed to carry a pistol. You know, I think that's that to me is like the biggest travesty in gun laws. Now, I'm not advocating that an 18 year old should have a pistol. I'm not advocating anything because I think responsible gun ownership is what I'm advocating for. But, if you know, I take my daughter shooting. 
I discuss with my daughter situations. You know, I try to make her self-aware. I try to give her that education on when things go bad, don't be the person sitting there with your cell phone. Just get the hell out of there. You know, you, you can watch it tomorrow on YouTube. You don't need to, you don't need to sit there and film it yourself. And, you know, when, you know, just try to diffuse situations because, you know, I didn't diffuse situations when I was 18 years old. I, some of my cost when I was 25 years old, I, I, I was the dick from time to time. Right. You know, and I'm not saying every fight I've ever been in, was on a defensive role. I was being an asshole from time to time too. I, I don't think a person can avoid that in the totality of their life, but you know, specifically with a daughter. And I would tell the same thing to a son, I, you know, I don't have any boys, but I would, I would say, don't look for that fight as a young man. Don't, don't need to prove yourself. You know, you know, there's, there's, I'm not trying you not to stick up for yourself, but on the same standpoint, don't be the person that's looking for it. You know, does that make sense? A hundred percent. It's a big you know, mix tennis is. I don't know. I, I think with daughters, it's, it's, I think with, I think with sons and daughters at a young age, like, you know, I almost think that young people don't understand the totality of that violence. I don't, I don't think they understand when, when you hear of 18, 19 and 25 year old, you know, 25 and un, under shootings at parties and all those types of things. I don't think they understand that it's just over like that for who they shot. I don't think they, I don't think they comprehend it ahead of time. I think that, I think it hits them, but I think, you know, I think it's such a split decision that it's like, Oh shit, what did I do? You know? And so stay away from them situations as far as you can, because it's a split decision for someone to, to make that bad decision and for things to not turn out the right way. Yeah. It's you, you look at it, like you keep going back to when we were kids and you did. You just got your problems out of the way. You, if you somebody talked smack, they paid for it. If you talked smack, you paid for it. If you saw somebody Absolutely. getting, if you saw somebody getting picked on or bullied, you had the ability to go over there and tell them to stop it and to to stick up for that person. And now nobody's accountable. You know, Mike Tyson said everybody's tough until they get punched in the mouth. Well, now you can you can bully somebody from across the world and yep. and make them feel too fat, too skinny, too ugly, too this, too that. There's there's too many things to compare yourself to for our kids of like, am I living up to the Joneses? Am I pretty enough? Am I tanned enough? Am I teeth straight enough? Um, and and I don't. I there was bullying when we were a kid, but it got settled. And there was the good guys and the good girls stuck up for the the underdogs and we we would take care of it to where now it's kind of like I don't even see a lot of pride in 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 my in my daughter and a lot of her friends on the places this, that they attend school at like I had way more pride growing up it was a way more part of my life now but now it seems like this social media or this extended network that they all have at their fingertips which I'm trying to prevent for as long as I can um, and do it in the safest way possible but it just seems like they have so much uh, more gratification through that type of means or vehicle than they do of getting on the playground and playing dodgeball or going to the local high school game or the you know that was it, it's just different times and and I just I look at it to where how am I going to release her? I just was at an intersection the day before yesterday on Saturday and saw three what I would call punks going over 100 miles an hour in three different vehicles on a road that is known it's deemed dangerous. And I just pictured my daughter pulling out there 
at that intersection and that happening. And I'm like, how can I control that? Like I drove fast when I was their age, but I, I tried not to be ignorant and I saw like pure ignorance and like, they didn't care about anybody else. And I don't, I, I know that we were that way. I know that you and I caused fistfights. I know that we were ran our mouths some, but man, it just seems times have changed. And now as a father, maybe they did it. Maybe I do have a daughter to pay me back for some of this, the hard times I did cause because now Jason, I'm like, Man, I don't want her to ever be away from my side. I really, truly don't. But I know she can't live a fulfilled life like that. And so I'm stuck, man. I'm in like I'm in like a, a holding pattern of how do I be the best dad I can and not smother her, but make sure she's always good. And I know all fathers have this ideology. I'm just I'm struggling with it. I bet that narrative goes back, you know, hundreds of years, right? You know, and. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you got to raise them right to make right decisions and know they're going to make the wrong decisions and hope those decisions aren't the biggest ones, right? You know, when you go back to, you know, kind of putting a multiplier on what I said of, you know, that high school justice thing is, is, you know, the story that doesn't exist anymore that is age old, you know, is standing up to the bully. You're, you're not allowed anymore in school. If, if Chad, if you were bullying me and I was in ninth grade, 10th grade, and I'd had a damn enough. And if I went home and told my dad that Chad Belding was, you know, was bullying me or being an asshole or pushing me down. He'd be like, you got to stand up for yourself where that ends. And I'd come to the playground and I'd give you one to the nose and you might beat the shit out of me, you know, or I might beat the shit out of you, but I can tell you one thing the next day, none of that shit would happen again. You know, that story's done. And you know, that's kind of sad when you really think about it from a life's lesson perspective is standing up for yourself in the face of, of true adversity, probably the first adversary at, adversity that you have as a, as a young man or a young woman and standing up for yourself, you're really not allowed to anymore. And, and I know people might sit there and say, well, you can tell them off. Well, that's bullshit. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just not the same. Right. I mean, and, and that story's done, you know, you can't yeah. tell your son it's okay to defend yourself. If I find out you're starting fights, I'm going to kick, I'm, I'm going to, you're going to wear your backside out, right. You're going to, don't be starting fights. It's okay if someone starts with one with you to finish it. You can't tell that story no more. No. You know, that just doesn't that just blows my mind. And I know there's a lot of people listening right now that are like, the hell you can't. And I'm like, I agree with you. Because I'll continue to do it. You'll continue to do it. And the good people of this country will tell their 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 sons and daughters to do that. But, you know, society has has made it so, you know, shunned that it's amazing. And and when's it coming back? It ain't getting better. No. You know, in that regard. So you know, I, I think I think it falls back to like I said is whew, if I was my parents when they released me to the wild, I'd have been like, shit, he ain't coming back. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, it was I have to ask you this question. It goes along the lines of community and, and society, and it's about what we're facing right now as Americans. Um I'm not going to get into a political talk um, or use this platform as a soapbox, which I could because I do have a lot of feelings about what's going on. But my girlfriend told me today that she paid $8 a gallon for gas back east, 801 somewhere around Maryland somewhere. Being as prideful as you and I are, as being as hard work as working as we are, your wife, your family, your, your, your livelihood, okay, your you love to hunt. You love to travel and hunt. You drive your truck. It doesn't matter how much it costs to fill it up. But how are we going to get past this, Jason? I want to end this podcast with living in America today, working our butts off for what? Because now it's becoming impossible 
to have a means of comfort when we every time we turn around we're going to face a different kind of stress now this morning and yesterday it was the monkey pox get ready to put your masks back on well that's bigger to me because that's telling me that all my entrepreneurial friends around the country that own all these businesses are going to be fearful of shutting down again and losing their revenue stream and then on top of that we're paying eight dollars seven fifty six ninety five a gallon for diesel or six fifty a gallon for premium unleaded where where are you thinking right now with your pride in this country how 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 is your thought process throughout the day process throughout the day um you know how are you tell me what you're thinking these days about what you're seeing and where we're going okay this is this is going to sound odd i'm going to stay off politics but i'm going to be a little bit in the political realm here on the on the immediate everyday view as as a as a young man that grew up with a single mom and then eventually a, a, an, an excellent stepfather and an excellent father, very likely to have two extremely good role models in my life. But, you know, we grew up with very little. Um, we grew up rich. We had great family, great love, you know, great support. I had all the love I could ever ask for them from everyone in my life. So I feel like I grew up rich. I didn't want for anything except for a little bit of physical stuff, you know, but, you know, we, we ate every day and might not have been what we wanted, but we, you know, we, we had a good life, even though we didn't have much. And I can't imagine what it's like for the millions of people in this country that are living that life right now. And, you know, because my mom made choices when we were kids and I, you know, I, I'd say financially, you know, she made choices. I remember my mom had like a pair of Reebok sneakers and they had made it like three years. They were her good sneakers for going out. And she had like one pair of good pants. You know, those were her like going over to friends' houses pants, you know. And then, you know, and I remember I, I got two pair of pants every year and I got a pair at Christmas. And that made me through the, through the school year, right? And, and, and like I said, I didn't want for nothing. And But, you know, my mom made sacrifices, right? We, she, she had one pair of pants and one pair of shoes for a number of years, right? Um, so... That's not a rare thing. I'm, I'm not the only one in this world who grew up that way, right? I'm not the only one living that way right now. And there's people living worse than that when I was growing up and people living worse than that right now. And damn it, I mean, it's got to be tough. And, and, and my words don't help that situation out. But, you know, when, when things aren't going for you in, in that regards, I, I, don't, I don't know how you look at it. Um, you know, and, you know, things – my dollar ain't stretching as far and I know yours isn't stretching as far and, you know, vacation, you know, like the, here's the luxury side of it, right? Vacations are getting canceled and four day weekends are getting canceled and maybe just going to the cities. You know, when I was a kid, going to the city was like a big deal, right? Maybe going to the cities for a weekend and that gets canceled and movies, you know, you're not doing movie night anymore, you know, once a month or when the big blockbuster comes out, I'm sorry, we can't watch it. You know, those are real decisions that affect people's happiness. And I know they all sound like luxuries, but they're there. Um, now, what I would say from a 10,000 foot view, and this is where I'll get a little political. Man, I hope to hell the country wakes up and just sees. And it's such a nice contrast in the most negative turns. It's such a not nice ain't the right word. It's such a stark contrast to where it was just two years ago to where it is today that I hope people can look at it and just, just, I hope it's a long-term pause of, of those that are making decisions now and, and, and they're out of the way for a very long time so we can get the world back in order. And the beauty of it is, is this country's been down and up through history, right? And, and it's the people 
that make this country so strong. It's, it's the blue collar everyday American that makes this country strong. You know, I, I know there's, you know, white collar people, they're the ones you go to when you need money. Right. But I'm just saying it's the blue collar people that make America the greatest country there is that live those dreams that strive for excellence to strive to give their family a little extra. And I know they'll win out in the long term, man. I mean, you can't, you can't keep a, a, a red blooded, proud American, you know, blue collar man or woman down. They, they, they refuse to stay down. They will, they will switch the world around. They'll get it right. They'll put the right people in the right places. And I mean, the exciting part is, is it didn't sneak up on us, man. It was a year and a half ago. Things were different. And today, you know, if you see the way the world is, I I just, I just hope people can wake up and I hope they can put people in the right positions that represent blue collar folks, represent America, you know, that, that represent what that American dream is, you know, to come from nothing and be something or, you know, come from a little here and get more or just just find happiness with what you're doing. You know, there's there's no better place in the country than America. It's a reason I went in the army. It's the reason I'm so proud. It's 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 just the reason that it's the best place in the world to live. And, you know, there's just a lot of tremendous opportunities here. And if you can stay optimistic on that and know that it'll turn, it'll turn. It always turns. And when it turns, hopefully we can keep it there for a real long time. Jason St. John for president 2024. <laughs> are we get? when are we going to announce this? Yeah. I, I don't hate myself enough to be a politician, <laughs> Chad. <laughs> I got to ask you, dude, lean back a little bit and show me this shirt. Is that a real, oh. like guns and roses shirt? That's a Sig Sauer shirt. Yeah, it's a SIG Hawaiian shirt with our MCXs, 320s, and bullets. I'll see if I can get you one. Please, XL. I would, I'd do anything for one. I, we do have a Guns N' Roses type shirt, too, if, you, if you're interested in that. I'll, I'll see. I'll talk, to, I'll talk to Sam and see if we can get a package sent out to your team there. Please, dude. Will you text me? Let me know. I'll, I'll buy that, and I want the Guns N' Roses one, too. And then I need double X for Clay, too. <laughs> in both of them. Solid. Yeah, I'll see what I can get done. You the man. Uh Foul Life Podcast, Sig Sauer, Peace of Mind series, the one and only. Jason St. John, that was part two. We will be back with part three. I want to continue down his military career, see what I can get out of the man. I'm trying to tiptoe around some things because I got a lot of mad respect for what he has done for our country and what he'll continue to do for our communities as a father, a worker at Sig Sauer, as a husband, as a mentor, as a hunter, a conservationist, a fisher, a provider. The man is legendary. I hope you all get to meet him someday. You really should do a little seminar tour and let people meet you because you really are a uh, just a captivating individual with how humble and how easy you are to talk to and knowing what you've gone through and what you've experienced. It, it makes it you got me motivated right now. Listen, you know, about the world we're living in and how it can get better and that the good people of America will make sure it gets back to where we need to be. You guys need to support Sig Sauer, all of their platforms, their entire, I don't, I mean, you can look at their entire arsenal, their entire portfolio, their offering. They're in a lot of different sectors now, whether it's optics, whether it's ammo, whether it's handguns, doesn't matter. Sig Sauer's got it going on. And Jason St. John walks through those doors. Have you been back in the office again, or are you mainly uh, working from home still? Oh, no. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I live in Georgia. Uh, home office is obviously New Hampshire, um, kind of co-located kind of centered up here close to Fort Benning and then Tampa and, and, and a couple other places to kind of help business out. But um, I'm up at headquarters probably, you know, one week a month and on the road, two weeks, you know, just trying to get stuff done. I love it. 
and Sig Sauer was just awarded a big contract. Are we allowed to say what this was? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yep. We were we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, I mean, a, a, a beyond seminal moment in in Sig Sauer history to to be awarded the uh, Next Gen Squad Weapons uh, Program Award. It's uh, for the replacement of the M4 and the M249 and close combat forces for the U.S. Army. And I mean, talking three years of hard work again. You know, high op tempo, high stress, no failure. You know, and yeah. uh, you know, I think I think what was it was real funny for me because it was like, I don't know if I had any emotion. I was just like, yeah, knew it the whole time, you know? And, <laughs> and I just, I just, I had the confidence and felt like we had done the right things with the right product and made the right decisions and put ourselves in the right place. But, um, you know, when you got to senior leadership, when you got to the COO and the CEO, I mean, tears, tears, not of obviously joy, but tears of fulfillment, tears of, a. Uh, a lifelong journey. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're talking, you know, 50 years of, of a journey. And, you know, I think, I think Mr. Cohen, our CEO said it best. He's like, you know, these, these are pursuits of passion and, and not of profit. Of, of course, we like to make some money along the way, but they really are pursuits of passion. And, and if you do get an opportunity to come up and meet Mr. Cohen, I think you'll see that on the surface instantly. And of course that permeates throughout the, the workforce. And I mean, Chad, you know, get you up to New Hampshire, get you on a tour of the factory, and you'll see everything from the CEO to to the individual on the floor, you know, making parts and putting guns together. You know, they 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 believe in what they're doing. They're they're happy. I mean, it's it is it is far and away an an amazing organization. And, and we need to find some time this offseason for you to to get up there and get you through there and get you out to the academy and do some shooting, get you on the machine guns. And, you know, of course, getting you on the machine guns is never don't have to pull someone too hard to get them in on that no, kind of I stuff. Do that. And we got to get, get you and your team up there and let's do a VIP visit and let's, let's, let's make it happen. And, and that's easy to do. Let's just find a week to do it. And we'll, we'll get you up there for two or three days. Okay. I'm going to be in touch very soon on some ideas or options for that, that time frame to see what works. Obviously I want to make sure that you're there. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't wait. I I'm, I'm so, so proud to be part of this and if it wasn't for you we wouldn't be you helped spearhead this whole partnership and it's uh it's kicking butt man i appreciate your time again jason st john sig sour peace of mind the foul life podcast thank you all so much for listening we will be back with part three with jason st john i hope you all enjoyed this episode and uh i can't wait to bring you more thank you all for listening we're gonna go out i gotta go out with my favorite military song of all time this is whiskey myers the song is called Frogman. Y'all enjoy the day. Yeah, I'm an American. E.T. self-diver. You're my conquerie. All the places I've been. To the ends of the earth. Hell and back again,
Frog man.